0: Welcome, everybody, to a very special episode of Crystal Kyle and Friends. Uh, Crystal and I have the honor of interviewing presidential candidate, somebody who just announced, Marianne Williamson. We're really excited for this. Marianne, thank you for joining us.
1: Oh, thank you for having
0: me. Our pleasure.
2: So, um have a bunch of stuff that we want to get into, but we thought we would sort of start with the basics okay. for people who are just getting to know who you are. Just tell people about who you are, how you came to this moment, and what made you decide to run for president.
1: My career began about 40 years ago, and I was interested in the fields of spirituality and psychology. I was giving these lectures at a philosophical society in Los Angeles in 1983. Shortly after I did that, the AIDS epidemic burst onto the scene. So things got very real, very, very fast. It was similar to COVID in the sense of kind of an ubiquitous panic, Mm. but it was different in this way. With COVID, it was easy to get, but your chances were that you would survive. With AIDS, it was difficult to get, but if you got it, the chances were that you would not survive. And there was a huge population, particularly among young gay men, where the horror... um, we're talking about you know friends losing friends, going to several funerals a week. Literally, mm-hmm. it was like being in a battle zone. So from that experience, and <clears throat> not only support groups, um, uh, founding nonprofit organizations around that, I it developed into a career where I had more and more experience working with people in. What you would think of as the worst times in their lives. It used to be a joke. Nobody calls me because things are going well. (laughs) And, but it was a, it was a privilege to be with people sometimes in their darkest moments. It would be, uh, that the test results came back and it's cancer or uh, my child is on heroin or I've lost my business or whatever it was. But as time went on around 20 years after that, I began to notice how many people's lives were in trouble, chaos, trauma through not through the proverbial acts of God, you know, somebody got cancer, it's nobody's fault. I began to realize, especially when I moved to Michigan, how many people's lives were shackled by conditions that were so difficult to survive because of bad public policy, Mm. because they didn't have health care, because they didn't have benefits, because they were in jobs that they were forced to be in that they hated, but it was the only way they could be there. People who were doing everything right. And so I began to see, whereas I had had this conceptual understanding of what the Reagan revolution had done, 20 years later, you got to see the results in people's lives. Mm. And I heard a story that was written by a Protestant uh theologian, about the Good Samaritan. And the Good Samaritan, I think of it as the transition from the Good Samaritan to the Conscious Samaritan. The Good Samaritan is walking down the road and sees a beggar and gives the beggar alms, walks down the road again, sees a beggar, gives the beggar alms, walks down the road again, sees a beggar, and gives the beggar alms, and at a certain point says, why are there so many beggars? And so I would write about this, and I would I, I already had the experience, people asking me to work with their systems, their organizations, their businesses. So I already knew that the cycles of a of a system, of an organization, of a larger entity is the same as, as for an individual. What makes people able to endure a crisis? What makes people able or a system to transform a crisis? And after a certain point, writing about it, having a voice about it, I began to realize that the system itself, the political system, is so resistant to actually doing something about it. And I began to realize that the system not only was resistant to doing anything about the problem, the system was the problem. So at that point I realized that, or I felt, and I still feel obviously, that it's not enough to just talk about it. It's not enough that there are different niches, different roles. We have to articulate the conversations that need to be had, but there's also the role for the politician, quite simply. Someone who stands within the system, calls the system on its own malfeasance, hopefully helps to articulate and harness the energy that will help us not only endure the problem, but transform it.
0: So um, to what do you attribute your attraction to helping the downtrodden? because we live in a very like consumerist and materialist society and i even feel it myself i mean when i'm done with a week of work even though i can barely call what we do work i'm tired i just want to you know go do whatever i want i for me to be like in tune with and addressing the concerns of people who are worse off than i am i mean it seems like it seems like an emotion a, a massive um a, a massive undertaking right so to what do you attribute your want <coughs> to help the downtrodden like that
1: My father grew up in poverty. He never let us, it's not like he never let us forget it on a personal level, but he would always make us, I remember we would be somewhere and he would stop us and he would point to someone who was working late at night, sweeping the floor at a 7-Eleven or something. And he'd say, see that man or see that woman? I want you to know this. Their life is very hard. He would always do that and then in my in, in in my professional life, as life went on, circumstances were such that because I was best selling author, because I was <clears throat> doing the Oprah show, etc, I was invited into circles where I saw the most advantaged, and then I was working in circles where i I was deeply involved with the least advantaged. It wasn't like one group was nice or not; no socioeconomic group has a monopoly on Values. I met nice people and people that I wouldn't necessarily want to hang out in both. But I saw, I felt in what was up close and personal, how rigged the system was, how easy it is once you are in the club to thrive within the club, how hard it is to survive if you are locked out of the club. And I saw how the average American is locked out of the club.
2: So uh, there are going to be a lot of people who listen to what you say, who really resonate with what you say, who believe in the values that you're espousing, but they say, she doesn't have a chance, she's not serious. And we already see the media um, going to great lengths to paint you that way as a (coughs) fringe, kooky, crystal lady kind of candidate, um, as they did, I would say, successfully last time. How are you going to respond
1: to that? Well, I'll tell you this. What I'm serious about is the fact that one in four Americans are in medical debt. What I'm serious about is the fact that 68,000 Americans die every year because they lack health care. What I'm serious about is the fact that 18 million Americans are unable to fulfill the prescriptions that their doctors prescribe to them. I'm serious about the 12 million children who are hungry in this country. I'm serious about the fact that one half of our seniors live on less than $25,000 a year. And I'll tell you what else. They're not serious about those things. They are either politicians who for the most part don't care about the suffering the vast sea of 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 economic despair in this country or they are Politicians who, uh, except for a few brave uh, exceptions that we all know about, um, are are have lack the moral courage or the spine to do something about those things. So I think if you put the group, if you put the military, uh, not the military, but the political uh, media industrial complex over here and put me over there, who is it who is serious about the deeper uh, socioeconomic realities in this country and how politics play into them? I think I'm the serious one, and that's what's going on here. By the way, I think they know that.
0: So many people in the left-wing base feel burned by the last few election cycles. You know, Bernie ran in 2016, Bernie ran in 2020. Neither one was able to get across the finish line. There's been a handful of people who've made it to Congress who are nominally on the same page as Bernie. But by and large, progress is not going nearly as fast as, as people want it to. So there's this very like pervasive cynicism and nihilism on the left and you have some people who throw their hands up and say, what are we even doing here? And they kind of check out of the system. Um, What do you say to the people who are cynical and nihilistic?
1: Well, first of all, I understand the feeling. I, because I'm older, have an institutional memory of a larger sweep and arc of history where but that gives me a deeper understanding that this kind of progress in, in social justice is always slow and is always hard. But sometimes you, you celebrate those little wins when you can get them. But also, we have to discipline ourselves emotionally. You know, Martin Luther King said we must uh, keep our struggle on the high plane of dignity and discipline. Uh, being heartbroken is part of this. Being heartbroken is part of this. But at a certain level, cynicism is an excuse for not helping. At a certain level, whether it's in your personal life or as as an activist, as someone out there seeking to change society, you recognize that it's one thing to process your feelings. It's another to indulge them. It's one thing to have to move through your feelings. It's another to spew them. And you have to recognize how, wow, this spiral will take me down And down and down and down. And I'm sure that there were days when for the abolitionists, it was extraordinarily desperate, as it was for the women suffragists, as it was for the civil rights movement, as it was for people during the New Deal. You know, if you have any deeper understanding of American history, things have been tough before and generations rose up. And it's simply our turn. And I think the more of an understanding of history you have, you also realize that the forces that other generations had to rise up against are the same forces, basically, that we have to rise up again, but against. But you don't see them as a, as people who gave in. I mean, we, it, we all have those days and we all have to hold each other up. And I, and I see that even in uh, some of my relationship with you. You know, there have been times when I've thought certain things and if somebody sent me a clip from Kyle, you know, that's that's life. Whether we're talking about individuals or as groups, sometimes you just—somebody uh, has to say, get up, don't indulge it, get up.
2: So the DNC's already— Rigging the primary uh, yeah, in are. Biden's favorite favor, yeah. uh, putting South Carolina first. They claim yeah. it's about diversity. Anybody with a brain can see it's really about power and making sure that he gets the nomination again. We of course saw what they did to Bernie in 2016 and again in 2020. How do you overcome that, ultimately? I mean, they may even come out and they basically (coughs) have already said, we don't want to even have any debates. All of their words about democracy sort of go out the window when it comes to actually controlling the process of who gets to hold power within the party and within the nation. So how do you overcome that? And then if you do, how do you make sure that that same system— which has created the same result over and over again for decades and decades and decades, how do you make sure that system doesn't then co-opt and change you?
1: Oh, well, uh, that the second I'm actually not worried about, I'm I'm too old for that. You know, at, at this point in my life, the, the bigger risk would be dying knowing that, uh, as my father would say, the bastards got to you. Mm. So if that was going to happen, I think that would have happened sometime in the last— However many years. So I'm not worried about the second. In terms of the first, there are already people, yourselves included, not only voices such as yours that are public voices, but even on Twitter, people aren't buying it the same way. People are seeing what the DNC is doing. I think they're overreaching. Uh they're not they're not even pretending that they're not rigging at this time. Mm-hmm. At least with Bernie, they used to pretend they are so overtly rigging it. People are seeing it and people don't like it because it that is an attack and is a passive attack on democracy. I will be out there and I will be saying that. You Biden should uh, debate me. This is a democracy. Um there is a certain point at which simply saying the truth as you understand it has an ameliorative effect, has power. And it won't be just mine to pierce that veil. It will be uh if it is to happen, it will be the voices of many, many people online volunteering for the campaign uh, which I hope they will do going to marianne 2024com um, Uh this will be not just my my work. This is, and that's the zeitgeist of this moment. It's it's collective effort. So uh, I we, if you look, as you mention yourselves quite often, <clears throat> if you look at the will of the American people in poll after poll, what voices such as ours represent are the will of the people. And people are understanding that when Lincoln said that the men who died at Gettysburg died, gave their last full measure of devotion so that a government of the people, by the people, and for the people would not perish from the earth. Millions of Americans realized it is perishing now. We are not functioning as a government of the people, by the people, for the people. We are functioning as a government of the corporations, by the corporations, and for the corporations. The status quo will not disrupt itself. The government isn't going to fix that because it's the government that has been seduced by those forces in too many cases. And so people will either rise up in our time and do what our ancestors did and push back against that or not. And in terms of my own candidacy, it is my job to present my views for people to see what my consciousness is. And if they feel that their views align with mine, then I hope that they will join with me Uh, It will take a whole bunch of us doing what we can um, to create a campaign that is powerful enough to override the dangerous nonsense that the neoliberal establishment has been feeding us for 50 years and will continue to feed us if we don't push back. So when it
0: comes to strategy, um, are you (coughs) going to go like scorched earth, let's fight? with Biden and the corporate media, who, of course, is no fan of yours? Or are you going to try to avoid negativity, <clears throat> put the blinders on, put your message and your policies out there in a positive light and just sort of stand on that? Or are you going to try to mix the two and and find like a, a happy medium in a sense?
1: What this campaign is challenging is an entire system. It doesn't matter which corporate Democrat it is. So the 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 criticism is of the way the system operates. Um, how that, so I don't want to have any, you know, low level, demeaning, personal pot shots thrown at Joe Biden. That's not what this is about. That's, that's not the high level of dignity and discipline that Martin Luther King was talking about. In terms of specific, uh, strategies, I'll be asking people like yourselves, uh, smart people. Um, sometimes, uh, I might have a, like, let me in there. I want to say something and maybe certain people around me will go, hold your fire. Other times there might be things said and absolutely we need to speak to that. Um, I'm, I'm, sometimes the person who's feeling the hit at the moment might not even have the clearest vision. Mm, But I, I also want to point out this, this whole issue of strategy. Did Donald Trump have a strategy? No. He hit a nerve. He, <laughs> he hit a nerve. Right. And that's what's happening here. It's it's harnessing I I see this campaign as a tuning fork. And if 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 this chord that I believe is in the hearts of so many millions of Americans, if we can play this chord, no system will be able to stand against it.
2: So um the polls <clears> suggest that there is a huge opening. In the Democratic primary, um, there are consistently a majority of Democrats who say they don't want Biden to be the nominee. They don't even want him to run again. They would like other options. Um, and so far, you are the, the option that has um, stood up to the challenge. But you can already see the media throwing at you. You're just going to help Trump get elected. Yeah. So I mean you know, is that is that a fear that you have actually that what you'll end up doing is just weakening Biden and then helping
1: Trump get back to well, the white Well of course House? that is based on the fact that Teddy Kennedy uh, primary Jimmy Carter I think people need to be reminded, Teddy Kennedy did not beat Jimmy Carter. Ronald Reagan beat Jimmy Carter. They're, they're making a causality there that I don't. I think is a correlation, but not a, cause, uh, a causation. Uh, my uncle died of cancer. Uh, he ate an apple that morning. To me, that doesn't mean I, I mustn't eat apples. So this is just the p- canard that they're throwing out there. Um, and, it, and I think that the bottom line is that this is a democracy. And if I present to the American people, and that's really my goal here, to present to the American people an option for genuine economic reform that just tinker around the edges, you know, we're, we're grateful to the president for defeating Trump. So we didn't go off the cliff. That's great. But we're still six inches away from it. You're still in a situation where you said you raised the minimum wage, but now you're hiding behind the skirts of the parliamentarian. You you had a child tax credit that worked for a few months. And then when it when it expired, nobody bothered to permanentize it. You say that that um, climate change is an existential threat, but you've given more permits uh To oil drill, to uh, fossil fuel extraction than even Trump did. You say you're a labor guy, but you wouldn't even stand up for the railroad workers who wanted sick pay. So it's 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 some incremental changes that are nice you know people talk about the inflation reduction act that's great we got some real solid investment in green energy the investment in green energy in the ira is one is is 5% of the money that is given to the military industrial complex mm. through the defense budget so i what i do have control over is whether or not the american people specifically the democrats in this case will have an option that says The alleviation of stress is not enough. We must move into genuine fundamental economic reform. I look at the uh, the president as someone who sincerely wants to help people survive an unjust system. But I believe that an American president should help end an unjust system. That, to me, is the great unfinished work of the Democratic Party. And that is a return of the Democratic Party to its traditional values of unabashed advocacy for the workers of America. And today, the, the part of the Democratic Party that has the most power is the corporatist element who's trying to have it both ways.
0: And uh, Crystal, just to touch on your question, I-, I would point out that in the 2016 Republican primary, they absolutely ripped each other to shreds and then Donald Trump went on. To, Thank you. So the <clears throat> idea like a tough pri- in my mind, a tough primary is actually sort of like what a tough exercise is <clears> to <throat> be your health. So like if you if you fight, if you go at it, if you lay it all out there, that actually makes you a stronger candidate for the general election, in my estimation,
1: I was thinking about that last night. And I think the bigger danger for the Democratic Party is how many people, particularly independents, are seeing this almost militant, you will do what the DNC says. I also don't understand why Democrats have such a codependent relationship with the DNC. The Republicans don't have that with the RNC. So we need the ramb- rambunctiousness and audacity uh, back in the Democratic Party that is more what I associated with the party when I was growing up.
0: So what? what's <clears throat> your case we, we know what the pitch is to the left-wing base. Uh, what's your case to actually get the normie Democrat to vote for you or even like independents and moderates?
1: First of all, I don't think of a pitch to this group or a pitch to that group. I, I, I want to speak to the American mind. I want to speak to the American heart. I want to speak to that place within us where I think most of us, most Americans, do have an instinctive understanding that this country matters. When we get it right, we're very, very good. And when we get it wrong, things can go very, very wrong, not only for Americans, but for people around the world. This is important. I think people do care about that. And I think that in the sweep, if you look at the sweep of American history, um, sometimes the question is not what do we do now, but what do we need to understand now? And if you look at the story of this country from the very, very founding 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence, positing as the core values of a new nation the very idea that all men are created equal, all men given by God inalienable rights of life and of liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And yet, 41 of those 56 signers were slave owners. That dichotomy has been with us from the beginning. That's our story. That struggle... It's a the American mind is a split mind. We have always, in every generation, lived out, including our own, lived out that difference. It's not between left and right; it's between the powerful and the powerless. And that, and now it's our turn, because it's not a specific institution such as slavery, the the uh, institutional suppression of women, uh, the Gilded Age segregation. Now it's more of an atomizer spray of injustice. It's the water in Flint over here. It's mass incarceration over here. It's water, you know, aquifers uh, drying up and rivers drying up in the American Southwest over here. It's children who are hungry over there. It's mass shootings over there. And everybody, uh, uh, it's not so much, we're drowning in information, but we have too little understanding. And that is what I am hoping people will do here. Think not just of yourself, of your group, but what's the story of America? And when you look at the story of America, you say, oh my God, what we're going through is the same thing that other generations have gone through. They answered abolition with, uh, they answered slavery with abolition. They answered institutionalized uh, oppression of women with suffrage. They answered segregation with the civil rights movement. And now it's our turn. Neoliberal trickle down. Fundam- uh, uh, market fundamentalism, hypercapitalism, whatever you call it, is this ubiquitous force of economic injustice that now permeates every aspect of our society. It shackles the vast majority of people. There are about 20% of Americans <clears throat> who live on the enchanted island of basically doing okay in America. And this island is surrounded by a vast sea of economic despair. I don't care who you are, whether you're rich or whether you're poor, whether you're black, brown, white, Christian, Jew, uh, secular, Muslim, uh, whatever you are. I'm asking you to listen to your conscience. Is that the country we want to be? And are you really thinking the government as it now exists is going to change that? The status quo will not disrupt that. We need to turn around. And if we do not turn around, we are on a collision course with disaster. We are six inches from the cliff in terms of the state of our economy, the state of our democracy, the state of our environment. But we need to make that U-turn wisely and responsibly. And and I am offering myself, you know, a campaign is a long job interview. I am submitting that I could, with others, help harness the 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 brilliance of the American people, we have the solutions in every area, but the people with power don't have the solutions and the people with the solutions don't have the power. Mm. We need to create a presidency where the people who actually have the solutions, but who do not necessarily in those solutions serve the immediate short-term profit maximization of huge corporate entities whose donations run this government. We need a White House, which lets them in. And we need a president who speaks on the bully pulpit of what is really going on in this country. And if we do that, then, and if I, if I am successful at getting that message to people, I believe that all kinds of Americans in their hearts know that there's some truth to that and would be open to electing that person as president. So one
0: of my biggest issues with Biden but basically every democratic president in the modern era is that there's this learned helplessness where if they run into opposition in Congress or the Senate it's just like oh what am i going to do there's nothing i could do i guess that's it i guess that's you know we got to move on to another issue and um uh, you know i make the argument that the the office of the president is it's actually understated how powerful you are as president of the United States because you're the commander in chief and also you're the head of the executive branch. And they already have a lot of authority that's been granted to them by Congress through you know various bills that they've passed over the years, bills that have become laws. So my question for you is like, when it comes to executive orders, um, just to give one example, under the Buy dole Act of 1980, the president has the authority to step in and lower prescription drug prices for any drug that was uh, made with US taxpayer money. Now, there hasn't been a uh, drug made in the past 20 years without funding from taxpayers. So in theory, Biden could just drop all the drug prices. Um, Would you make it a priority to have legal experts in your administration looking for legal ways to do through executive order all the things that we need to do to help the American people?
1: You better believe it. I would do that the first week. Absolutely. Absolutely. We have billions of dollars of subsidies given to these pharmaceutical companies, and meanwhile, the American people—18 million—cannot afford to fulfill their prescriptions. I saw that Eli Lilly yesterday uh, brought uh, their insulin price will go down to $35, and that is because of the leadership of people like Bernie Sanders in the Senate and all of the activists that have um, that have worked on that issue. So, absolutely, I would do that. Absolutely. And and the president could also, through executive order, could declassify marijuana, uh, schedule one drug. There's a lot that the president can do uh, 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 with executive order. And of course, the Republicans will scream and yell and go, uh, oh, you know, dictator. And that's what they always do. But fine, let me do those things. And when I'm no longer in the White House, you just try to uh, take those uh, great things away from people, see how they respond.
2: Yeah. Or let them challenge it in court. Yeah. yeah, same thing. Yeah, if- and
1: some people feel, you know, with with the challenge that uh, President Biden is receiving right now to the money that he try is trying to shave off from the uh, college loan debt, some people say if he had just done the whole thing right away, it wouldn't have given people the opportunity to mount the challenges. It's so shocking to me how pe- the, the the lengths that people will go to deny other people their rights. Mm. It's uh, tragic.
2: Um, Let's talk a little bit about foreign policy. Okay. Um, How would you describe the sort of Marianne Williamson foreign policy agenda or theory or vision to the extent that there is a sort of cohesive principle that would bind it together?
1: Well, John F. Kennedy said we must end war or war will end us. I look at war and peace much the same way I look at sickness and health. Sickness is the absence of health. Health isn't the absence of sickness. And war is the absence of peace. Peace is not the absence of war. So I think we need to wage peace as seriously as we wage war. And as I was mentioning before, there are specific factors involved in waging peace. There are specific um, things that you can do to increase the incidence of peace. Right now, we have an $858 billion military budget. We have a $60 billion State Department budget. And we have something like $1.9 billion that we give to the USAID. Now, of those three, the USAID arguably does more to create peace in the world because it actually addresses the needs of people. So I would want a foreign policy, first of all, where diplomacy, uh, State Department efforts of diplomacy, take far more primacy. They have been sort of cast to the side of the room. It's the opposite of what used to be true. It used to be true that the State Department was at the table and the military guys were sitting in the back of the room. Today, the military people are at the table. And the State Department, you know, it used to be that if you were having a foreign policy discussion and somebody said, oh, we can't do that, that we can get that past state, that would be taken very seriously. Today, it's like a joke. People would roll their eyes. Ooh, state's not going to like it. Mm-hmm. So we we have to go in and clean all that up. Um, now, having said that, I look at the U.S. military like I look at a surgeon. If you have to have surgery, you better believe you want to have the best surgeon, but you're also, any reasonable person would seek to avoid surgery if at all possible. So, uh, we have a history of imperialistic misadventures in this country. Uh, we know the, the criminality of the Iraq War, the thousands of people, possibly millions of people, if you count people elsewhere, who have died from Vietnam to, uh, uh, to, um, Iraq and certainly the last 20 years or so in Afghanistan. Um, I think America has a lot to atone for, um, our uh, imperialism, quite simply. I think that there's uh, we are needing to turn a corner, and I think there are some people within the defense establishment, or at least the foreign policy establishment, who are trying to do that. Undeniably, however, there is in this town what's called the blob, mm-hmm. the defense establishment, which exerts tremendous, tremendous power. Even though the neoconservative views, uh, the Iraq war, et cetera, had been proven to have been utter failures and utter utter wrongs, that power is still exerted and they'd have a problem when it comes to me.
0: So uh, Bernie made some news recently when in an interview he said we should condition aid to Israel now contingent upon some sort of a, a peace deal and Palestinians getting human rights do you agree with that position that we should condition our aid to Israel? In other words, if they start bombing Gaza or something like that, you have civilian casualties, we go, man, you know what? Sorry, but those billions we give you, you're not getting them
1: now. Absolutely. No money should go uh, to Israel that's not specifically for defensive purposes. Absolutely.
2: What is your view of what's going on in Israel right now? There was um, just recent news that Trump's uh, Ambassador to Israel, who was famously sort of very pro Israel and very hawkish, um, was condemning uh, Netanyahu's attacks on the independent judiciary there. It's, um, go ahead.
1: It's terrible what's happening in Israel. Uh, this is the most far right government that the country has ever seen. Uh, the attacks, as you mentioned, on the judiciary there, there were 100,000 people in the streets in Tel Aviv protesting this. Um, I'm very concerned. You know, when you have someone like Anthony Blinken going over there and even him saying in public, watch it, watch it, baby. Um, I think that that means something. And I think that that is the appropriate. I'd love to hear. I'd love to hear President Biden say, watch it, BB," And uh, you would certainly hear that from me.
0: So um, when it comes to Ukraine and Russia, um, you know, there's, this has been a very heated topic for understandable reasons. Um, people point out you have an illegal and offensive invasion against a country that didn't attack Russia. Russia was the aggressor. Um, but then you also have people pointing out, Hey, there was NATO sort of built up to Russia's border and that, you know, served as some semblance of a provocation because they viewed it as aggressive from the West, but putting all that aside, I think the more important question here and the more important point is, um, as president, would you actually try to get to the negotiation table and try to work diplomacy because that's actually a controversial <clears throat> position here in this city where we're sitting, in D.C. Nobody's allowed to say the word negotiation or diplomacy because then they say, oh, you're appeasing your Neville Chamberlain. You know, you can't make a deal with the madman or whatever. Do you think that that's the way to go, negotiation and diplomacy, or should we continue effectively funding the proxy war? Of Well,
1: it-, it- it's a complicated situation, but of course the goal should be negotiation. Of course the goal should always be negotiation and diplomacy. And uh General Milley and the Rand Corporation have said that that is the only possibility here. So I think the question is, when can that happen? I think that those are, you know, I've heard so many people on both sides of that, of that topic, come to the conclusion that of course you want a negotiated settlement. The only issue is when is that possible? Some say the United States could come in there right now and say, I want a negotiated settlement. And of course we want a negotiated settlement. The United States should do anything possible to make that happen. I have my questions about whether or not Vladimir Putin would be as open as we might like to such conversation if we were to say it today and couple that with complete withdrawal of our military support. But that absolutely Absolutely should be the goal and the analysis should always be at what point and how can we best exercise our power to, to influence this situation in such a way that negotiation and diplomacy in order to save lives, in order to decrease the risk of nuclear encounter might occur. Absolutely.
2: What do you make of the reports that early on in the war, there was there was publicly reported there were peace negotiations going on. No one can know exactly whether they <coughs> would have come uh, to any sort of a deal ultimately. But um, recently, the former Israeli prime minister talked about his involvement in those talks, that there seemed to be concessions being made on both sides. And effectively, the West, led by the U.S., said, we don't want this deal right now. You know, and the underlying implication was Russia's not doing well. We think we can strike a blow against Russia. We actually want this war to continue. What do you make of those reports?
1: I think those reports are true. They're indisputably true. And we know that Boris Johnson went over and talked to Zelensky. I believe those things. And I also heard that interview uh, with a former uh, Israeli prime minister. It's indisputably true. So the voice of those who would say, let's perpetrate this war. Let's keep it going in order to weaken um, weaken Russia. They would not be in the room with me. I would. They would have no, uh, no influence on my thinking whatsoever. Those who are concerned about the. Uh, imperialistic invasion on the part of Putin, despite our, the imperialism in our own past, who are concerned about the um, the invasion of a sovereign nation and wanting to analyze what this would mean for that entire area, they would have a voice with me. But those who just want to use this as a proxy war um, to weaken Russia, to me, those are the voices of horror. They have had far too much influence in this. They, they, they're no different than those who said, let's invade Iraq in my mind. Mm. And uh, they would have uh, no voice with me. And they, they probably have their opinions about China and that have no voice with me uh, on their opinions there either. So
0: um, the last time you ran for office, there was a period where you weren't in favor of Medicare for all. And then when you dropped out, you endorsed Bernie and uh, you have pretty clearly had a had a change of heart where now you wholeheartedly support the idea of Medicare for all. Um, What was it specifically that made you change your mind and realize that this is the way to go?
1: that I saw that it wasn't as easy as I had thought it was. I thought with Medicare, with Medicaid, I underestimated the administrative difficulties that people go through. I underestimated how much of the insurance people could get was still underinsured. I underestimated how much the system wears people down and leaves people out. I got that wrong. I had it wrong. I th- I mean, it wasn't like I didn't listen to people. I remember speaking to to uh, Medicare for All um, uh, expert, but I simply had it wrong until I didn't. It was a little bit of one of those amazing grace moments. I was blind and then I saw and then went, well.
0: Um, so this is probably the most important question to me because as much as I, you know, love Bernie Sanders with his two runs, towards the end of his campaign, I had some very, very strong disagreements with how he was approaching the situation. You know, he dropped out endorsed Joe Biden. They did this very sad-looking hostage-like phone call where, oh, uh, do you support uh, a $15 minimum wage, Joe? Yeah, Bernie, I support. (laughs) It was very, I was watching it, and I was like, oh, okay, it just, it felt gross. Oh, it was painful. (laughs) So so here's, uh, let me set up a hypothetical for you, and I'm very curious what your answer is to this. Let's say we're at the end of the summer, the race is over. You made a phenomenal run at it, but you got 42% of the vote and came up just short. Mm. Uh, Joe Biden calls you and Joe Biden says, hey, Marianne, you know, look, uh, we've said things about each other over this past however long, but, you know, I'm an old school politician and um, I want to talk to you. I want to have a meeting. Uh, let's 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 talk. Let's make a deal. Joe was
2: on his good man's that day. Uh,
0: yes, he was. <laughs> um, and, you know, <clears throat> so you get into the talk with him And he very clearly is looking for your endorsement, for you to drop out and to endorse him. Um, Would, could the American people have your word that in a meeting like that, you will have a list. Here are five things, 10 things, all things that you have the authority to do as president of the United States. You don't need Congress. This is all things you could theoretically do through executive order, just like the lowering the prescription drugs, like we talked about before. Will you give people your word that you won't just roll over and say, yeah, yes, I'll endorse you and I'm not going to ask anything in return? Will it be contingent upon, yeah, I'll endorse you, but here's what I'm getting in return for it. And then by the way, if you don't deliver on that, this is not over, then I'm going to you know, publicly crusade against you and remind everybody that you broke your word.
1: You know, I remind you that I'm, I, i'm not a i'm not a legislator i don't have a political career there that i have to worry about going back to if i got 42 percent of the vote you think then i just like fold and walk away and not take anything with me after all that i and so many other people would have had to go through to get to 42 percent you you know i no no i would not no i would not walk away easy and, and no no absolutely so you'd have a
0: list of demands
1: i would have a list of demands and i and would you negotiate con- it well absolutely and i would consider all options, actually, Mm. and how I thought that I could, with that 42%, make a difference in this country. You better believe it.
2: Mm. Um, What did you learn last time around?
1: I I, I don't know if it's so much what, well, certainly I learned a lot about just how what what it means to run for president. There's no doubt about that. But I think the changes in myself more than anything, I've talked to Nina Turner about this. When you go through a certain kind of acid bath of the hate that people throw at you, the smears, the mischaracterizations, the lies, it gives you some emotional antibodies. I, 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 there are things that I can ignore now that you still like, how could they say that about me? I'm just like, whatever, that's what they do. And I think learn, learning that that's an emotional lesson and psychological lesson and just flying above some of that. I have some things that I believe need to be said, you know, as a writer, I was m- From the earliest days of my career, I had read a line by a man named Arnold Patton. He said, if you genuinely have something to say, there is someone out there who genuinely needs to hear it. I'm having a conversation. I'm having a conversation with people who I know agree with me. And I know that there is an ameliorative effect in having this conversation and harnessing for political purposes. I'm doing this. But the people who don't like it, who, you know, there's a a term contempt prior to investigation. I know how many people are criticizing my books who never read them Mm -hmm. or criticizing my career who know nothing about it or criticizing me who don't know me on, you know, it's one thing to criticize me for things that I might deserve criticism for. But things that I just, what I've learned is ignore, ignore. I've always, I've always thought if somebody criticizes you, the first thing you need to do is ask, is there any truth to it? Even if there's 10%, is there anything to learn from that? But beyond that in the field of politics, what I've learned is to, a friend of mine wrote me, um, she's, it doesn't matter who she is, but she wrote this to me in a text the other day. Keep your eyes on the light of the fire. I want to keep my eyes on what's important. What are the issues we're talking about? What would we do with the presidency? What is the agenda we can offer to the American people? What do people need? What can we discern? How could we provide the help? How could we help transform this government back into the government of the people, by the people, and for the people? What I've learned is to make those issues and those questions give them the entire landscape of my thinking and to let the rest go into the into the mud of low-level energies that they are. The media will do it. The, whomever will do it. Twitter will do it. What I've learned is to ignore all that. We have important work to do.
2: And lastly, for me, why will this time be different, different than last time?
1: Well, first of all, Bernie was running. And I think that a lot of people who do agree with me— were not seeing me, understandably, uh, in the sense that they were so supportive of Bernie, but also for reasons that I think many of them now realize was a lot of fairy dust thrown in their eyes about me, who I am, and what I stand for. But also, Crystal, I think the country is different. I think many of the things that I talk about aren't so easily mocked. How are you going to say to people who themselves are dealing with depression, are dealing with anxiety, are dealing with so many internal problems, let's mock the woman who speaks about those things? Mm. (laughs) I think people have kind of woken up to the idea that it is not woo-woo kooky crazy to recognize that the problems of our time will not be solved with thinking That is based on bad ideas left over from the end of the 20th century. Einstein said the problems of the world will not be solved on the same level of thinking we were at when we created them. Mm. This is a new century. I see it. Young people get it. It's like it's a whole systems breakdown. We need a whole person response. We have to realize if you if you don't take care of a child today, you will need more prisons later. If you don't take care of people's needs today, you will have a mental cri- uh, health crisis later. If you don't, as FDR said, provide the blessings of democracy, you will have the threat of authoritarianism later. I think a lot of people are ready to say, you know— She's right. It's not just symptoms. We have to talk about cause. And the people who only want to talk about symptoms want to talk about it because it's a transactional above the neck uh, politics that has no care or concern about human suffering. It's what got us into this mess. It's not what's going to get us out of this mess. And my hope is that they'll give me a listen. And I believe that if they do, and if I do my work well, then we could help cha- we could change. this country.
0: So I saw in a previous interview you did, there was like a little bit of like a lightning round portion and you were asked, hey, if you could only do one policy, you have to pick just one, what would you pick? And you gave a good answer. I, you said uh, universal health Medicare for all. I thought that was a very good answer.
1: I didn't. It's, it's funny that you say that because I thought about it later and I thought, nope, I would have said something else. But go on. Okay. Well, well what, would you, what would you have said? Well, the undue influence of money, particularly corporate money on our political system, is the cancer. Underlying all the other cancers. So if I had that magic wand that I was asked, I would overturn Citizens United. Yeah.
0: Well, that's a, that's an even better answer. And mm-hmm. we could talk off air. We could talk about this, but yeah. I can explain to you how it's not just Citizens United. It's McCutcheon, of course, it's Buckley versus yes. Leo. Of There's course. a whole bunch of those cases. But yes. anyway, that that's a very good answer as well. <clears throat> so I wanted to do a quick little lightning round for
1: okay. you.
0: Give me an answer, one word. Got three quick questions. Number one: Can you beat Joe Biden? Yes. Number two: Can Joe Biden beat Donald Trump again? Or Ron DeSantis. No, number three, can you beat Trump or DeSantis?
1: Absolutely, let me in there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think I think that's a good note to end on. <laughs> uh, Marianne Williamson for president. Tell everybody where they can find you. Thank you tell everybody your twitter oh app, i'm
1: sorry your, uh, yes. okay all uh you can stuff. find me at marianne20 no yeah marianne i don't know if it's marianne for president 2024 or i'm sure that we've got all the urls try marianne2024.com
2: and what's your twitter they can find definitely find you there mar
1: williamson there you go
0: marianne2024.com let yeah. me check
2: well it uh, not it <laughs> well it's not oh yet. you didn't type it in yet what you didn't you type it in right
1: well it's not it's not live yet that's true, too. Oh, it's not out yet. Yeah. Okay, that's
2: why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. twenty twenty. It looks like it's Marianne 2024. All right. (laughs) On that (laughs) note, thank you for your time. Thank you very much. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, It's quite something that you're undertaking. And, you know, I never ran for president, but I did run for office. It was a very searing experience. Um, So, and you've managed to maintain your, and I mean this in a positive way, your tenderness and your vulnerability and your humanity throughout all of your political activities, which I think is incredibly difficult and incredibly brave. So thank you, Mary. The
1: admiration is deeply mutual. Thank you.